0: Appendix N Podcast, Episode 39, The Castle of Iron by Elsbrog de Komp and Fletcher Pratt. Welcome to the Appendix N Podcast, a Tome Show production. My name is Jeffrey Wynn. This is the show where we discuss the enchanting tales of the authors that appeared in Appendix N of the 1979 Dungeon Master's Guide. Meant to serve as inspirational reading for those who would master the dungeons of fantasy. If the stress of normal life and work have got you down, picking up a good book can be like stepping into another world for a vacation. Who knows what you will find there? You might just fall in love. For those of you listening at home, you are encouraged to read along with us and send us your comments. Listen to the end of the episode for some of the stories we'll be discussing on future episodes, and email your thoughts to thetomeshow at gmail.com. On with the show. And with me, as always, is my co-host, Jeff Wickstrom.
1: As always, I am happy to be here.
0: And joining me once more is my fabulous guest, Peter Foxhoven.
2: Thank you so much for having me uh, on again, you guys. It's great to be here.
0: It's me, Snark! I don't really like Noble Knights that much, but NobleKnight.com is okay by me. You know why? They got tons of products for me where I can just be hiding in dungeons and stuff like that. Also, it's, it's really, really cool. I get to find all these bestiaries that I can fill my dungeon with and all kinds of goblin miniatures. So check out Noble Knight. They'll even buy old gaming products that you aren't using anymore, and they're awesome. NobleKnight.com. Make sure you tell them the Tome Show sent you. Today, we are talking about The Castle of Iron, the third story by L. Sprague de Comp and Fletcher Pratt about uh, Harold Shea, a part-time psychologist and full-time enchanter. Uh, this story was first published in Unknown Magazine, April 1941. Uh, it was eventually published in hardcover by Gnome Press in 1950. And in paperback by Pyramid Books in 1962. And of course, has been republished in the various uh, collected editions of uh, The Adventures of Harold Shea the Enchanter, such as The Incomplete Enchanter, The Complete Enchanter, The Complete Complete Enchanter, and so on. Peter, how did this, this is, is your first time joining us for The Adventures of Harold Shea. How did you overall? enjoy these stories
2: you know i really liked them um i'm I'm not gonna lie i'm a huge actual fanboy of the podcast uh which is why i emailed you initially now wow like a year or more ago um so you know i've been reading along and it's it's interesting my my uh exposure to Elsprog de camp is the pastiche work he does uh or rather he did with lynn carter for conan Go figure. <laughs> so it's uh, really interesting to see him writing something that is uniquely his own. I mean, with Flet- Fletcher Pratt, but uh-huh. it's uh-huh. been cool to see him do something where he's not working in an established character or trying really hard to capture someone else's writing style or their tropes, but doing something himself. And it's it's actually a very different um, look for what I expected, I guess, from to uh, so i was really pleased
1: now uh, we're here today to discuss the castle of iron but correct me if i'm wrong you also read the roaring trumpet of the mathematics of magic in preparation for this
2: episode uh, yeah i was reading them along with uh you guys because I, I like to know what you're talking about on the podcast
0: okay listeners you all out there should do exactly what peter did and then you should write into our show and tell us what you thought Peter, you get, you get uh, an, an apple and five stars. Yes. Right. Uh, go on.
2: Um, yeah. So uh, I guess I don't have a, a ton of other thoughts. I, I just I thought that his take, um, if we go back a few of them, like his, the land of fairy for him. Mm-hmm. It was really interesting to me reading that after um, our discussion on Tolkien's on fairy stories, because mm-hmm. I had that pretty freshly in my mind still, even though that was a while ago. And so it was kind of cool seeing some of those elements, like what Tolkien was talking about, like what separates it, what makes a fairy story, a fairy story Mm. and that having its own grounding and its own internal consistency was kind of part of it. And you can, and I I felt like you could really feel that in there. And now I was a little disappointed because at least in in the uh, castle of iron, they talk about symbolic logic, you know, Mm. and they're using that for magic. And uh, as a, the, a holder of a degree in philosophy I took some symbolic logic courses and I never gained any magic <laughs> so I was I've been I mean I could tell Aww. you about Leibniz law and like Morgan's principle but I, I'm not able to do any I'm not able to summon any gin or anything so that's kind of a bummer so I felt a little let down so thanks Professor Robinson <laughs> hold, hold holding the magic all to yourself
0: well, they are- well you know they, they they are trying trying to do what, what uh, Tolkien was, was was also trying to do and, and sort of uh, codify and, and make make fantasy seem more more real or at least more thought th- th- thought out. Uh, both of both of which lead into uh, Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, as as I recall, Jeff, you were you were less than enamored of the first two tales, at least when we started talking about them. Uh, has yeah, that... I, I I would say that you did successfully
1: bring me about bring me around to a grudging respect for the incomplete Enchanter, uh, and now finishing out the trifecta, I, I have I have read all of the complete Enchanter. Um, I I kind of am drifting back towards my initial impression.
0: Mm. Yeah, I mean the, the the third story it it, it does sort of uh, ramble a a around a bit. It's sort of just a series of, of scenes, some of which work and some of which, which don't. Um, But yeah, it's, it's just sort of, sort of like, like a big long, you know, one of, one of those big long, you know, on, on, ensemble movies that, that just, you know, where, where they've got like 30 Hollywood uh, stars and it, it just sort of goes on and goes on until it, until it ends. It's the, the,
1: the oceans 12 of, uh, (laughs) of Appendix N.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I, I mean I I recall that way way earlier, one of one of the first uh, shows that you joined me for, Jeff, uh the um uh uh Pelucidar stories kind of suffered from the same sort of thing where the hero was just kinda of wandering from forgettable event to forgettable uh event. But I, I think I think the Harold Shea uh stories are, are a vast improvement because we actually liked like the characters or at least
1: Yeah. The I, that's an interesting an interesting comparison to draw because the thing that the castle of iron etc the thing that it really has going for it is the fact that it actually has some characters in it compared to the uh, the Pellucidar stories mhm uh, now there are there aren't, very, there aren't nearly as many characters as there are like proper names for characters. An awful lot of these, these people are pretty generic, and hmm. uh, several of them could be replaced with mannequins without uh, really affecting anything in any way.: Yeah, Four of them could just as really pretty much all of the women except for Bella Phoebe could very easily have their parts played
2: by, by furniture. I think that that's been a pretty consistent criticism of the era of the Appendix N that we've worked through so far and, and that you guys have worked through mm-hmm. so far is that it's it's not even like a... Is it Mary Sue? Is that the, t- the term that they use? Yeah. It's not even so much a Mary Sue character. You're exactly right, Jeff. It it, it could just, just be replaced by an inanimate object.
1: It's just an, a complete absence of characterization, which I I feel like is something that we've seen before... With regards to female characters in Elspeth de Camp stories, um, not to be too hard on um, Less Darkness Fall, because that did have some female characters. They weren't particularly well treated, but mm. they were definitely there. Were there was characterization to them that there really isn't for for Florimel or the woman that um, the bounce check lusts after, or the other woman that the bounce check lusts after. <laughs> uh, neither of whom get names. And uh, I've just listed off <laughs> any of the, like, four female characters uh, in the story. So, so, so I feel like that's a problem. But... So
0: but before, we, before we go any further, let's, let's for the listeners uh, try to uh, sum up the story. Uh, so this, this is, is the third uh, Harold Shea. When we last left our hero, Harold Shea, uh, he had returned from uh, Spencer's *The Fairy Queen* with his uh, girlfriend uh, Bell, uh, Bell Phoebe, who was a character from the story that he had taken back into the real world, and we we pick up uh, sometime later, and we learn that he's uh, married uh, Bell, Bell Phoebe, and uh, but now Bell Phoebe is missing, and uh, the the police are in involved and there's the, the these two uh very uh sort of uh cartoon uh cut out uh policemen just, uh questioning Harold Shea and his and his uh his uh, uh associates at whatever uh institute they work at in uh Ohio I don't know yeah, yeah. it's it's, yeah, it's, it's like a,
1: it's like a vaudeville routine
0: Yeah basically it's 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 like a, it's like a uh, DeComp and Pratt just got back from seeing like the latest uh, gangster film. And they were like, let's, let's put those guys uh, in our, in our book. Uh, so they're being a question when they're suddenly uh, ripped from uh, the real world, uh, Harold Shea, uh, his uh, two of his si- psychologist friends and, and the cop. Uh, and one of his psychologist friends is help me with the name Vlader, Vladimir Vladimir uh, Vatsy. Vatsi. Yes.
1: Vatsy Polasek.
0: Vatsy Vatsi v- who who has uh, the the, nick, the nickname of the rubber check, presumably because he's Czechoslovakian, and has a rubber neck or something. I, I'm not quite sure. Um,
1: it's like a a, a bad check. Yeah. Czech, rubber check.
0: Yeah, I'm just not sure why you you'd hang that nickname on on like a person.
1: But it's a, it's a deprecating nickname.
0: Yeah.
2: It and, is and and also just to throw this in um because you guys are are uh, easterners, right? You guys are both from the from the east coast? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Basically. So, um in the Midwest, which yeah. is where I'm from, there's a there's actually a pretty sizable um Czech and Slovak population, and so like Having um, traditionally having jokes aimed at like bo- bohemians or like bohunks, right, which are Czechs, is actually fairly common in Midwestern states. And now it's very like tongue in cheek because, you know, that group of people, that group of, of Central European Slavic immigrants are, are you know, so uh, homogenized with the rest of us. But those mm-hmm. there's still like that kind of humor,
0: yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, so it, it's not
2: unheard of in this region of the country and Ohio being part of the Midwest to have that sort of like, oh he's a Czech sort of thing.
0: Yeah, I mean it, it, it sounds like the the sort of uh loving uh tongue in cheek nickname that, that you'd you'd give to a to a colleague that you that you that you uh sort of get get along with. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So all right. So uh Harold Shea, uh Pulitzek. Uh, Walter Bayard and, uh, and, and the cop are ripped from the real, real world and first they find them, themselves in uh, Samuel Taylor Coldridge's uh, Xanadu
1: which I have to kind of take issue with uh, because the poem describes Xanadu pretty specifically and the landscape that is described uh, in the Castle of Iron is really inconsistent with it um Xanadu is full of sinuous rills. It is a garden. There is a river running through it. It is definitely not a featureless marble expanse that stretches off from horizon to horizon with uh, big oriental pillars at uh mm-hmm. although that's a that's a, a fine like image right. for a a bizarre otherworld. Uh it's just it's it's not that's not Xanadu.
2: Right. This I... Xanadu reminded me way more of the Rush song by the same name. Honestly. And like maybe it's because I'm like an obsessive Rush fan. But like when yeah. I was reading that, I was like, oh yeah, I can like picture Getty singing about this. It
1: put right? me in the mind of the Arcane Sanctuary in Diablo two.
0: Oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean it, it it does make a pretty great uh, d- uh demiplane, which I think is something that that gets overlooked a lot in Dungeons and Dragons ad- adventures. You you you've got these very like e- expansive worlds and 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 you've you've got the the outer planes where like philosophy determines what's what's real, but everyone just seems to seems to ig- ignore the the odd uh demiplane where you can just sort of let your imagination run wild in a in an in enclosed space, uh, the, the the authors justify the, the sort of weirdness that's going on in Xanadu by saying that it's it's based on it's based on an unfinished poem, but I the, the Fairy Queen was also an unfinished poem, so maybe... well, Xanadu
1: is much much shorter, so you can you okay. have to extrapolate more. Uh, but I don't I'm not really clear on why they go to Xanadu at all. Uh, it, they just because they immediately leave it for um, Orlando Furiosa, right? And jet- jettisoning uh, like half of the party in the <laughs> process. It's, I mean, why not just go directly from Ohio to Orlando um, and not bring along uh, Bayard and mm-hmm. the cops?
0: Well, I mean, I'll, I'll, El, El Sprague de Comp's stories so far, including Less Less Darkness Fall, seem like they're written to page count i mean they 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 just sort of jump from scene to scene and then they sort of end without any real real climax i would i would say that's true for all four of the stories that that we've read by him so far um i I don't know why why that is um Mm. but it, it 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 uh yes it turns out that uh they were they were ripped from the real world by um I forgot Chalmers. Yes. Uh, Chalmers. Chalmers from uh, the previous story who we, we last saw uh, had been left behind in the Fairy Queen with his lover Florimel, who was uh, a
1: A uh... <laughs> made of snow and B had no lines.
0: Right, yes. <laughs> so somehow uh, Chalmers has found himself in the Orlando Furiosa, which is which is uh, different, Ar- Arthurian fan fiction if i 've done my research uh, correctly, uh, Jeff, were you familiar with the Orlando Furioso
1: I was not i was I had to go look it up and get a little bit of background from Wikipedia and I did not even know that Orlando was the Italian form of Roland, um, so this is a, a version of the the story of roland
0: yeah, so like i, I did so in my in my research which, which consisted of going to uh, Wikipedia. Uh, Orlando Furiosa was a was a 16th century uh, poem that that was uh, based on another uh, unfinished uh, poem, Orlando inamorato, Orlando in in love, from the 15th uh, century. So uh, last time we talked about Harold Shea, Jeff, your, your your comment was this is sort of fan fiction of fan fiction of fan fiction. Now we're we're taking that I think a few steps uh, deeper. Um.
1: it's it's taken a few steps deeper it's also a lot looser on a lot of levels and what this setting reminded me of uh more than anything else is the story the non-existent knight by italo calvino which actually has charlemagne in it um where he gets lines and is not just a a vaguely referenced background figure as he is in the castle of iron
0: and Wikipedia uh, but, even, even says that uh, this, this, uh, that the, the Orlando Furiosa was an was a influence for the non-existent knight and also for Spencer's uh, fi- fairy queen.
1: Really, it, refer- it mentions the non-existent knight in the Wikipedia entry? I <laughs> promise I did not actually read that. Uh, I, I, I mean, I read the non-existent knight uh, years ago, and it just this made me think of it. I did not read about the non-existent knight in Wikipedia.
0: You, you are just well-read and very smart.
1: That's what I'm saying, man. Why do you constantly
0: question that? I, I, I don't. All right. So, uh, yes, they, they find themselves in the Orlando Furioso, which is the story of Roland. And I only know about Roland from the video game Marathon to Durandal, which was named after Roland's sword, Durandal. It's a classic video game. You should you should play it if you if you like uh, Halo. But, uh, yeah, so uh, our, our heroes, Harold and uh, Vatsi, uh, they, they, they leave behind one of the psychiatrists and, and uh, the cop, and they are summoned by uh, Chalmers uh, into, into the Orlando Furioso, and they find themselves in the Castle of Iron, uh, which is the castle of the wizard Atalante. Am I, am I saying mm-hmm. that right? Okay.
2: As far as I'm concerned. Right. Yeah, that's how it, they pronounced it in the audiobook.
0: It's the, it's the castle of the wizard uh, Atalante, and um, I think uh, Chalmers is, is in the service of Atalante. He's still got Floramel with him, and he's trying to figure out how to turn Floramel into a real uh, woman so that he can take her back to the real world. Because there's no magic in the in the real world. If you take a snow woman to the real world, she'll just she'll just turn back into snow, and we can't we can't have that. Um, and we discover that uh, also here in the castle is uh, Roger, the perfect paladin, which seems to be an anglic- anglicization of Rugerio, the the character. Yeah. From, yeah.
1: Yeah. Which I, I think is just because they thought that it was funny to have the, uh, the I, to the extent that there's a a, a heavy or a villain, I mm-hmm. guess it's it's Roger, but having him be named Roger. <laughs> I think that's just meant to be kind of a running gag. because everybody else uh, nobody nobody else gets an anglicized version of their name. Mm-hmm. Um, just just
2: Roger.
0: Yeah, and I, I mean and he 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 also seems to seems to get the the ar- archaic uh manners of 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 speaking down pretty well and he uh I I I say he but there's but there's two authors and they 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 seem to have you know researched what what type of type of food they they would would be eating and and costumes and and even uh even Muslim uh, customs of, of the time, which is which is a good time to, 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 to bring up. This is supposed to be about a, about a war between uh, Charlemagne and uh, an an African uh, is Islamic king, I guess. So there's there's lots of references to uh, uh, Islam in these in this story, and I, I have to say, for something written in the in the in the 1940s, I I mean, Islam is treated rather rather well. Uh, That's
2: not entirely out of place though So um, Robert E. Howard wrote a series of desert adventures And st- and things of that And uh, tales of the n- Near East um, During his time And his conversations around Islam Were also very tolerant And surprisingly so I think that there's this period Where it was just sort of viewed as this sort of other religion, right? Where I, I think most people didn't know enough about it, and we didn't have um, culturally enough um, mm-hmm. inter- interchange for us to really have a, an opinion about it. And certainly it predates, you know, the modern era and all of those bigotries that come right. with that so I think it, yeah. it's very lucky to be free of that. I think there's the, also I think there's also a certain amount of historiosity
1: to it. Right. This is it's not necessarily praising the Islam of 1941 as it is praising the Islam of um, I don't know whenever this was meant to be set the ninth century, I guess.
2: Right. No, I could definitely see that and, that, and it is it really a golden era for it, I think that was my favorite part about um, this particular tale. Is that Moorish Spain has always been incredibly fascinating to me. Right? Like Islamic Spain, I've mm-hmm. always thought it was just it was stunning. Um, and uh, the the preservation of learning that goes on in this time period when Europe is plunged into a to a dark age, you know, is, is very important um, historically speaking. And so it's kind of cool. And also, I, I I've always liked the Alcaide setting yeah. in D&D and I always thought when I was reading this I was like this is just you know perfect to mine for ideas for Alcadim."
0: Yeah so this this story is is just full of uh Christians and uh saracens both of whom are really just there to fight and have ad- adventures. It's not really about religious conflict at all it's just about uh you know whatever yeah, they're whatever just te-
1: they're team names basically.
0: Yeah basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so at at some point um, they uh, Roger Roger is bored in the castle and so he wants to go out and and fight and at some point Roger uh, escapes from the castle and the rest of the characters have to go uh, after him. Uh, there's a there's a hilarious scene where uh, Harold is trying to explain to their to their guide how a, how a map works. Um,
1: that, I feel like, could have come out of a particularly frustrating session of the D&D game that I, I ran in college. <laughs> I can easily imagine the player characters uh, struggling to convince some idiot NPC that I thought was, was just a laugh riot. Uh, that's of the, the basics of abstract
2: thought. Mm-hmm. Actually, that scene was the part that I had the, the, the hardest time with. As far as my suspension of disbelief, um, because the Arab world of that time, when we're talking about when Charlemagne's around, which is what, like the sixth, seventh century, somewhere in that range, maybe after that. Um, but he was uh, he was crowned in in 800 A.D. Thank uh, you,
1: as Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. So this would this would have to be the ninth century, I would think, mm. right? Because right. these are all Charlemagne's vassals.
0: So it's it's the same What's time on? period that uh, Less Darkness Fall takes 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 place in.
1: It's um, a few hundred years after that. Oh, okay. Yeah, let's start. Just, just a few hundred years. It's, it's pretty close, historically speaking, certainly closer
2: than um, we are to uh, Shakespeare. Definitely. Um, but that was the thing, though, where I got a little incredulous uh, was that because of the sophistication and the more widespread learning of the Arab world in this particular... Time frame, right? As as it's spreading across North Africa and into Southern Europe, um, well, into the Iberian, they had a, just higher rates of literacy and mm-hmm. learning than uh, their European counterparts, and so I found myself just a little bit m- not—I don't want to say miffed, but having trouble yeah. believing that this hunter wouldn't be able to gather a map.
0: Well, the right? the, that he was, the hunter's he name just, was what, like at at Chegarai or something? Was like—is that I? Like maybe he wasn't supposed to be a to supposed to be a Saracen maybe he supposed to be like some foreigner that they had just I don't oh know, had just stumbled into into their service or something
1: I think that he was meant to be Saracen. I don't think that he was meant to be. Literate. I think that if you're look, if you're talking about the difference in the amount of learning, it's a difference of a like a three percent literacy rate versus a nine percent literacy rate. Yeah, I guess that, um, that is fair. There's still going to be a bunch of um, very provincial peasants uh, who don't have the opportunity to. There we're, there were no public schools.
0: We are we are talking way too much about this hunter who we we never see again. um so he's he's in like he's in like three scenes i think total so Uh, but i'm surprised
1: i'm surprised peter that you say this is where your suspension of disbelief struggled (laughs) because it that means your suspension of disbelief did not so much struggle with astolf
2: (laughs) oh yeah well i can't i you know i admittedly have no rhyme or reason for where my suspension of disbelief (laughs) Comes in and out. For instance, when I saw the X Men movie, that like first one back in the day, my first thought was, "Why is Jean Luc Picard fighting Gandalf?" <laughs> so I I cannot explain why my mind works the way that it does. I
0: don't think Lord of the Rings had even come come out yet yet then. Yeah, but it was very prescient of you. We yeah. just we just we just had had the trailers, but Ian McKellen was already Gandalf in everyone's one's minds. Oh, um, totally. But anyway, anyways, getting getting back to the plot of the castle of. Iron, uh, we we will get to get to Aesdolf because he was hilarious, and I and I do wanna wanna talk about him. Uh, but uh, Harold's Harold's goal in this entire ad- adventure is he's he's looking for his wife, uh, Bel- Bel- Phoebe, who he took out of the uh, fairy queen, and uh, was was accidentally summoned by Chalmers to Orlando Furioso. and we learn that because. Orlando Furioso is 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 also sort of based on Arthurian legend, sort of, and because there's a similar character named Belphégor in the Orlando Furioso, Belphie has just become Belf Belphégor, which um, is makes for interesting plot. That's certainly not how it works in, say, uh, the DC universe, right? You don't you don't if you know if if you go to Earth 2 you you meet your Earth 2 counterpart you don't become yeah. your Earth 2 uh, counterpart
1: it's interesting as a plot device it doesn't make a whole lot of sense i don't think um i didn't get the, i don't I, it never seems that anybody else is stepping into a fictional role uh, we're left to wonder was there a Belphegor in the setting prior to belphebe's occurrence or did reality just sort of Rewrite itself, and all of the people who knew Belfagor only knew knew her retroactively, or was there another Belfagor mm. who winked out of existence as soon as Belphoebe appeared, or did Belphoebe eat her? Um, and I gotta say, this whole thing with Belphoebe and Belfagor was something that I found I was really disappointed by, mm. because for the first little bit after um, after she finally finds her and discovers that she has basically amnesia and does not remember him. She thinks that she's Belphegor, this person who is, you know, 99% identical to her. So she's very easily able to mistake herself for it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really, and he, he's, he's constantly, you know, saying, no, no, you're my wife. I, you know, don't you remember? And she's constantly saying, no, I don't remember. Um, that's kind of creepy of you. And they have basically that interaction over and over and over again for like, The the whole back half of the book. Um, But when it first started, I was, I I suspected, I sort of hoped that the whole thing was a put on by Belphebe, that she was pretending. That she believed herself to be Belfagor, just to, to mess with Jay. Because I was imagining uh, Phoebe being like, "Listen, I went back to the United States. I had to uh, get a driver's license. I we took a we <laughs> went on a trip to Lake Erie." um yeah there was a lot of adaptation and so turnabout is fair play if i'm if i end up in a in a place that is more that is more meant for me then i'm going to uh to make you adapt to there right in the in that way but that sadly that is not the case uh i, and I was disappointed
0: interesting no i i i did not i did not uh for a moment have have that theory uh I, I, I do sort of wish that, that, that we'd gotten a little bit more of, of how uh, Belle Phoebe you – know, what, what Belle Bell, Bell Phoebe thought of America and the real world and getting a driver's license and playing tennis and things like, like that. But um, uh, yeah, Harold all... seems to be under the impression that
1: she had a pretty good time. That's yeah. really all of the data that we get about it.
0: Well, I mean, I I like Harold. Uh, you know, he, he seems to be. Uh, you know, I, I, I like him more than I've liked liked a lot of these other pro- protagonists. So I'm gonna take his word for for now. Uh, but uh, Bel Bel Belphie is is more than awesome in this in this book. I don't I don't know if she quite makes up for the lack of characters character characterization in uh, other female characters. Uh, but she like acquits herself uh, well in this uh, tale. She you know she she beats people up. You know there there's a scene when they're when they're uh, sleeping at an at an inn and people come in in the middle of the night and capture them. And Harold wakes up to find you know Bel Belphibes being held by by three guys. One of whom has a has a black eye and the you, you know the other one has has scratches across his face. And then they they you know. She, they get separated, later,
1: and yeah, late, later she gets kidnapped, and uh, Shay goes on this madcap thing to rescue her. And when they finally get to where to her to her whole her, to her holding cell, it turns out that she's taken the guy who uh, who kidnapped her and has uh, subdued him and is lying in wait to ambush anybody who comes into the room.
0: So yeah, so Belle Phoebe can basically take take care of of, of herself. She's she's no yeah. damsel in. In, in distress, there's a there's even a, a awesome scene. I think I think it's shortly after they escape from 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 the castle in the in, in the beginning, where no they're they're running from from someone. But uh, Bel- Phoebe uh apparently is friends with with the centaurs of the of the forest, and is is able to just like call them and like ask them for favors because she knows like the three. She, she's taken the three olas of the woodland, or what, she's basically like like a ranger. Or, yeah, or, she she or had the drill. same power
1: in the mathematics of magic, I, as, as I recall. She was able to communicate with the creatures of the forest in, this, mm-hmm. in the same way as she she's, does in Castle of Iron.
2: She's a great example of um, someone with that sylvan, like a sylvan character, somebody with the mm-hmm. fey archetype, mm-hmm. right? Because the, it does strike me that someone with that, like from the fey wild, would be a little bit more savvy and a little bit more. Um, I guess effective at combat and stuff like that than somebody just from the prime material plane, just because of all the insane stuff in the, in the fey wild.
0: Yeah. I mean, she, she, she seems to, to, to be, to be sort of the, the uh, inspiration or, or the, the archetype for a lot of the nature based characters. I, 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 I wouldn't even, even say fey. I'd, I'd, I'd say, I'd say the, say the nature based uh, classes like, like the ranger and the druid, and the, and the Harper's of, of early forgotten realms. I mean, she, I mean, she's, she's not a fairy. She's a, she's a human, but she enjoys sleeping out, out, outdoors. She just, she doesn't want to sleep in a, in a bed. Uh, And she, she knows all this, all this wood, woodcraft. She's, you know, she's apparently passed uh, rigorous uh, trials or something to, to, to be friends with these uh, centaur's. I mean, that that seems a lot like what you would find in the fluff about uh, druids and rangers and and harpers in in early like first first and second second edition. Um,
1: Absolutely, and I think this is the first such character that we have seen um, in the appendix in readings. A character for whom being a a nature person is a, is a an attribute of them it's it. Mm, let me see if i can back up a little bit and phrase it it's not like Phoebe mm. is some kind of nature class it's more that she has like the nature kit for her class mm. mm-hmm. uh, and this is this is the first time we've seen a character who isn't just like a a a because because there's been uh again let me back up uh this is the first time we've seen a character that's not like a barbarian cave person covered in leaves um, barely able to speak who who possesses this level of um,
0: wood woodcraft. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think she's uh awesome. Uh I I was sad that we didn't get as much of uh, Britomart in this uh story who's she's she's also got a different name. Uh uh, Mart oh, she, was I think yeah. my favorite character from from um, uh, the the mathematics mathematics of of magic and she's, Maddox, she's, yes, uh, she he only
1: shows up in one scene here which is a shame
0: she's brought Bradamante in this story it's it, I think it's sort of uh, hinted that um, she and Roger have sort of a, a kinky relationship because she just kind of like slaps him and Roger just kind of giggles
1: yeah i i'm willing to say that that's nineteen forty for uh for being kinky
0: <laughs> yeah they've got they've got uh something something going on uh where they where they enjoy wearing uh leather leather clothes to bed and that's uh <laughs> that's... they definitely <laughs>
1: enjoy one another's company and they very quickly find an excuse to go off together by themselves alone with a pretext uh that's
2: she frankly doubts that they're actually going to carry out. <laughs> well. Seems dangerous though. I mean in a, in a world with verbal components, I think a safe word might uh <laughs> might be playing with fire a little bit.
0: But. So so uh Peter, you've 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 touched on something. We we actually get the the phrase verbal component and somatic com- com- component in this story, which are which are two of the three components that you need for spells in Dungeons and Dragons. I think the other being what, material? Material. Yeah.
2: And while they don't necessarily say material component, they bring it up. Like when uh, when um, uh, the rubber check is uh, turns himself into a wolf, right? There is that consideration of and yes, I guess technically they're looking for like a silver weapon to s- subdue him, but there are some undertones of needing like the material components for certain things too.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: It, I don't think it's just explicitly said. Yeah, yeah. But most of the
1: most of the magic that we see is all poetry with special hand gestures. Yeah, uh, which which apparently it's easy to get those hand gestures wrong and then have the whole thing backfire on you, um, which is a reason not to do magic. Which. Uh, in terms of like coherence of magic system puts the castle and iron uh castle of iron like a, a good 300% up on the roaring trumpet where there was really no reason not to just use magic for everything all the time
0: yeah you were you were com- com- complaining about that 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 magic was way too easy in the in the roaring roaring trumpet and here it here it uh, backfires a lot it's it's almost like you you have to roll a roll a d20 to cast a spell in 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 this one whereas you could you could just cast it as a standard action in um in in the first tale yeah and uh, even when
1: shay successfully casts spells often the effects are not quite what he was expecting or quite what he wanted um he is stuck looking like a jan i think a fair bit longer than he wanted to yeah for instance and it, it, incidentally, listener, if we seem to be jumping around uh, a lot and discussing the plot of the Castle of Iron, don't worry. Uh, it is no less coherent in this presentation than it would be if you were sitting down to read it.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's basically yeah. a
1: series of unconnected scenes.
0: I think, I yeah. think the, the the magic system in this story is a sort of magic system you'd want in a role-playing game where everybody is wizards. And just coming up with spells to defeat the spells of your opponent is uh, half the plot. Yeah, definitely.
2: What it really reminded me of um, is Goodman Games has a system called Dungeon Coral Classics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and their whole mechanic for spells is that it—it's any given spell is a chart. And the higher you roll, the different the effect. And you don't... It, actually have the ability to choose so let's say you were to roll like you know with modifiers a 24 and you'd look at what a 24 is on the chart you can't choose necessarily the lower um results on the chart even if that's desirable and so one that makes magic a lot more fluid and a lot harder to control and i could definitely see because it's a game where they say that they didn't necessarily want to base themselves off of you know, D&D proper, but wanted to base himself off of Appendix N. And when I was reading this, I really got that. And also there's a a thing in that uh, system uh, uh, called, there's misfire, which happens if you roll low enough. And then there's also uh, spell corruption. So if you were to, let's say, roll a one on your spell check, there's a chance that not only does the spell fail and have a misfire thing, but you could be physically altered. Because of the way that the magic wasn't done properly. And when reading what happened to... Uh, mm-hmm. uh, to... Uh, or whatever his name. The, uh, well, Harold oh. too, but also uh, uh, the rubber check when he... I'm going to keep spacing on his actual name. Uh, when he got turned into a werewolf or a wolf. I, I really thought of that. I was like, oh man, that's a great exact example of, of spell misfire from so, Dungeon Crawl Classics role playing game.
0: Now I really want to play Dungeon Crawl Classics, but I have a feeling that that games would be would be short and devolve into chaos pretty quickly.
2: Uh that the death rate is very high. <laughs> but if you're used to uh like Beck Me or uh or first edition, it's not really too crazy death. Yeah, you know, I'm it's, it's I'm exactly I'm
0: so. not I I jumped on board with like third edition, so I'm, oh, well, I'm, then it would
2: seem like you're going to die a lot, but it's really fun.
0: I would, I would like you know, to GM a game of, of Dungeon Crawl Classics, but I, I don't know who would, who would play with me.
1: Um, I, you know, thinking back to the BCMI Dungeons & Dragons that I played and the AD&D that I played when I was in uh, elementary school and junior high school, I don't know that any characters ever died. I'm pretty sure we had millions of hit points. <laughs> and there was, there was really no limit to what we could do. So I don't know where this high mortality thing uh, really comes from in discussing old uh, old versions of Dungeons and Dragons. And I'm and I'm being facetious here because I thought that it was funny. let
0: <laughs> well, let's. I was, uh, say, let's...
2: I, was, I was thinking my very first wizard who had two hit points that got taken out by a sling.
0: So... <laughs> back when back when you didn't even get your full uh, hit die for your for your first first level. Nor, nor did you add your point. constitution bonus
2: oh I didn't have a con- I didn't have a constitution modifier yeah so I didn't roll well enough
0: Oh. and eh, it happens well, let's let's move on to some of the other uh, wizards that we meet uh, in this story uh, ace Aestulf is is how his name was pronounced in the in the audiobook and uh, uh, Merlin shows up in this story uh, so we 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 meet uh, Aesdolf, who is apparently uh, also like Harold from the real world. He's from England. Uh, Do do we ever figure out why he's here? I mean, he's or is this just like what wizards do? They just wander worlds and have adventures.
2: I think that must be it.
0: Aesdolf
1: was my uh, my favorite part of this. Novel, and I have a, an alternative theory as to why he is the way he is, uh, which is that Orlando Furioso is set in Moorish Spain, and the further you get out from that, the less realistic and uh, more chaotic in the um, you know uh, limbo, chaos, wild sort of way you get. So when you get, if you go all the way to England, things are just nuts there. And they're so nuts that they've heard of America, and if you went all the way to America, I mean, the Lord only knows what you would find. Um, Probably sea serpents with six guns.
0: Yeah, but isn't isn't Ace Doll from uh, England in the real world? I I thought
1: I thought he's he's from England. I don't know that he's from England in the real world. What is the real world, man? I mean, the real world of uh, Harold Shea is the fictional world of the Incomplete Enchanter. Right, is I, that I, he, I got, is that? I got the sense real than Harold Shea going to the fictional world of Orlando Furiosa, huh? I
0: got I got the sense from from uh, conversation that that he regularly hangs out with Merlin, the the Merlin of Ar- Arthurian uh, legend in a club in modern day uh, London.
1: He he hangs out with Mer- with a Merlin in a club somewhere. It was definitely a a remarkable Merlin. A guy named Ambrose Sylvester Merlin who has an impressive number of letters after his name.
0: Yeah, um, I mean, Merlin shows up but in I, what not, was for the is time.
1: That, is that necessarily the Merlin of the real, of the real world? Well, I mean, he's just, he, just he, a, a Merlin.
0: He shows up in, in 1940s uh, clothing. Merlin he does. does uh, sh- what, do we, is it 1940s clothing? Is it 1870s
1: clothing? He's wearing spats. I associate spats with Rich uncle Scrooge. And I know for a fact that he dressed in the style of the 1890s. Um, so maybe Merlin's clothing was about 50 years anachronistic, huh?
0: I mean, isn't isn't that what like rich Rockefellers and stuff were 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 wearing like even even then, like you know, top top hats and you know, like like from the song "Putting on 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 the Ritz."
1: I am asking Google, when did people wear spats? <laughs> Because if they're a twentieth-century thing, okay. No, they fell out of. This is what Google says. <laughs> they fell out of frequent use during the nineteen twenties. Okay. Well, Merlin's really old, so stopped, he doesn't. When they stopped wearing spats.
0: <laughs> well, Merlin's really old. He doesn't. He doesn't read uh, G- GQ. He doesn't know what the what the uh, what's what 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 the kids are wearing these, these. I can I can counter that argument too because let's see. <laughs>
1: He was dressed with formidable correctness. That is exactly how uh, the Castle and Iron describes Merlin. He was dressed with formidable correctness in cutaway pinstriped trousers and spats.
0: (laughs) Okay, well, he certainly didn't get those clothes from within the world of the Orlando Furios, so...
1: See that's that's my contention is that he did because the world of Orlando Furioso once you get out of the actual setting of the of the story gets all weird and crazy.
0: Oh dear, Peter, settle this argument for us.
2: Oh, I I wouldn't even know. <laughs> I mean like when it's I think really... spats, I think of guys in zoot suits. So like I don't again
1: the nineteen twenties is when people stopped wearing spats, according to Google, and you know, Google has millions and millions of dollars.
0: <laughs> All right, we'll we'll take it to uh the, the listeners. Listeners, you've never written in before, even when I have begged you to. Now 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 is the time. We are we we are locked. We we, we cannot solve this problem. Go out and like buy somebody,
1: <laughs> I feel like somebody did write in once to correct something I said that was wrong that that can't I'm be sure because un, un,
0: until now Jeff, you've never said anything that's that's wrong on this show I'm quite certain uh, so I mean the thing
1: the thing <laughs> is that I feel like my my description of the world of Orlando Furiosa is really just an expansion oh dear of um what we see uh, about the the edges of the world and narrative causality as it's discussed in the mathematics of magic, which I think is an, a sort of alternative framework to the high Gygaxian ultra versimilitudinous, uh, it has to be something explainable by real world physics and the laws of chance, et cetera, mm. uh, that we're so commonly seeing in, well, in early D&D.
0: Mm. All right, I just, I just want to, as a, as a side note, uh, Peter had to go at this, at this point, so it's, it's just, it's just going to be Jeff and me from uh, here on. Uh, but let's, let's, let's talk about uh, Aesdolf because you said he was your favorite, favorite character. Uh, he was my favorite character
1: because he came in and uh, really aggressively declined to, uh, to fit into the paradigm of the rest of the story. Mm-hmm. Which is something that I th- I think is cool. I'm sorry you have to go, Peter. By the way,
0: oh, he's he's gone. Oh. Anyways, um, yeah, I mean he was he was he was a, a, a jackass. He was yeah I, I, I yeah I thought he was Peter.
1: I don't I don't think that's fair.
0: <laughs> no no, Aestholf.
1: Yeah, A-Ace Dolph had the the player character rakish air of somebody who wasn't taking the whole thing very seriously.
0: Yeah, I mean, and, and that, that's why I thought that he was from, 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 the real, from the real world. Like, he had just come here to sort of play uh, video games, basically. You know, he was, you know, he was just kind of stepping into the, into the holodeck. I think, I'll be a, I think I'll fight for the Saracens today.
1: Um, yeah, but I think that that's just, uh, you know, what you get when you're a really high-level wizard. Mm-hmm. Right? You're, you're an extremely powerful wizard. You, you, you can basically treat the world like a giant holodeck. That's what magic does for you. You don't have to explain anything.
0: I guess. All right. So um, I think we've, I mean, we've, we basically just discussed, I think the, the high points and low points of this story. The, I mean, the, the plot we've does skipped over a bunch. We haven't yeah.
1: mentioned, uh, Maduro, the bard, uh, who I think was the inspiration for Edward in final fantasy four.
0: Yes. So we, we, Very we, spoony. We meet a uh, pretty boy bard named uh, Medoro, who's who's always just written a song and he wants you to you to you to uh hear about it. There's a there's a brief love triangle with with him and Belfebi and Harold uh which is resolved in uh Harold's favor.
1: Yeah, I, I mean that was inevitable. Uh the resolution of it struck me as kind of silly and pat, but I wasn't going to complain about it.
0: Yeah, I think Harold makes Peach Brandy again, uh, and gets uh Maduro drunk. And uh, And then
1: Medoro talks smack to Bella Phoebe and she's like, Eh, hey, get out of here, you I've hundred percent abandoned my feelings yeah. for you. Uh,
0: I think based the,
1: on your one food interaction.
0: Mm-hmm. The the <sighs> story ends, I think there's a there's a battle uh, where they're where they're going to I, I think I think get Roger back. Uh, and Bel- Belphoebe takes an arrow to the to the side, which again just sort of like ups her badassness in 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 my eyes. I mean, we we you know as 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 rarely as we see badass female warriors, even even rarer do we see them actually like get get hurt. So like I mean that that was cool, uh, and of course yeah. she she uh, survives because in this magic system there's no separation between. Uh, arcane magic and divine magic so a a wizard can heal an an uh, arrow wound uh, I, th- I think it's 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 Astolf who who uh, heals yeah
1: Astolf comes in and heals her and then uh, I may be getting things a little bit out of order but then the question is what about Florimel the woman made of snow can Astolf do anything about that and Astolf is like no such magic is beyond even my powers but I know a guy. And then Merlin shows up and turns Florimel from a snow lady into a real live girl. And then he leaves again.
0: Yeah, he's he's got to go to a presentation.
1: And I got to say, the first like two times I read that scene, I was under the impression that Merlin left with Florimel. Um, you see, picked her up and carried her off. And she, of course, having no agency, wouldn't object. Uh, and I was thinking, well, it's kind of a shame for Chalmers, who has spent like two books now trying to woo this Snow Lady, and then Merlin just comes in and takes her. But apparently, Merlin leaves her. So I guess that's good
0: for Reed. Merlin's Merlin's a, a stand-up guy. Uh, so the, the 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 book ends with uh, all the all the characters are together. Merlin does his thing, and then uh, Atalante shows up. And uh, it it ends in a in a duel between uh, Atalante and and Dolph as the rest of the characters just sort of hightail it out of there because they don't want to be caught up in a duel between two very powerful wizards.
1: I um, imagine Ace Dolph just cackling and being like, yeah, wizard fight. All right, let's do it. <laughs> Cracking his knuckles.
0: And and you know as as I've mentioned, uh, the story just just kind of peters out there. and Like they don't even make it back to the real world. It just sort of ends with a joke from uh, Harold about, oh yeah, what about those two guys we left in uh, Xanadu? Which I believe we will get back to in the in the fourth story if we read the fourth story. I don't think it was written until many years after this this one. Um, but the story just, just it was not written
1: f- until uh, 1953.
0: Okay. But yeah, I mean, it, it, it just sort of seems like they're, they're like, oh, we've, we've hit our page count, uh, end of, end of story.
1: Yeah. But I mean, it, it's e- easy to criticize a story for not being the story that you wish the authors had written instead. Mm-hmm. Um, the castle of iron is the, the novel version or novella version of a, of a hangout, uh, movie, right? Like, like. You were saying I forget whether that was before or after you started recording, um, but it's like *Oceans 12*. It's just Elsprague uh, to Camp and Fletcher Pratt being like, you know who 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 was a lot of fun, Harold Shea. You want to read more about him? Here's here's some stuff,
0: or like or like *National Lam- Lampoon's Vacation*, which is basically just a series of comedy scenes as they as they drive across the country from one place to to an, uh, another. I mean, it yeah. it has a plot, it has characters, but you could really just pick up that movie at, at any point, watch five five minutes of it, and then you know go do go do do something else. Uh, this is this is kind of kind of like that almost.
1: Yeah, and for for what it is, I I guess it's pretty good. Um, I I gotta say that I don't like Elspere de Camp's work nearly as much as uh, Fritz Lieber or as uh, mm-hmm. much as Jack Vance.
0: Well, I mean, there's a reason he's or not he's even- not. R- yeah, or r- even r-
1: August r- Durland. I mean.
0: Yeah. Ooh, dear. Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's a reason uh, L. Sprague de Camp is, is and and uh, Fletcher Pratt are not uh, re- remembered as as much as some of those other uh, luminaries that that you mentioned. Um, I
1: feel like I heard Sprague de Camp get talked about a bunch as a little kid i well, heard. He, he I did guess, a lot I mean, of work. Read, read about.
0: Right. I mean, he he wrote a lot. He wrote a lot. His bibliography had, is long. It's just you know when you write that he much. Had
1: the, the A list, which was Isaac Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke and Robert Heinlein, and then you had the B list, which was um, Ben Bova and L Sprague de camp and Fritz Lieber and Jack Vance and Robert Silverberg and so forth. And I don't know where exactly I got that division of the Mm -hmm. a tier and the B tier. Um, I, I
0: I don't know. Yes. I I, I didn't read nearly as much as you, Jeff. (laughs) I read a,
1: I read a bunch of fantasy and science fiction when I was a kid. Mm. Some of it stuck with me. Some of it was just in one eye and out the other. Yeah. Um, but L. Sprague de Camp was one of those author names that was always like on my my bucket list, um, alongside uh Fritz Leiber, whose mm-hmm. whose stuff I've enjoyed a, a great deal, uh, for Appendix M. And I gotta say that Sprague de Camp stuff just doesn't hold up in that way to what are probably inflated expectations on my part.
0: Mm-hmm. I think for for my part, I, I enjoyed these three Stories. I mean, they, they certainly had their had their problems. Um, there there's not much incentive to go back and reread them. Uh, you know, I'm sort of happy to just to just be be left with the Im- impression of them. Uh, they, they certainly now that I've read them, I can I can see how they've influenced uh, not only Dungeons and Dragons but like ad- adventure gaming in 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 general. Like I was I was reminded of like Zork. And and other uh, text-based oh, yeah. and and click ad, adventures. Reading this, um, and and just just other other fantasy novels. And you know, I I think these are the first stories that we've we've read, other other than The Hobbit, really. I think with memorable characters. Um, well, I mean, I guess Conan's a memorable character, but I don't, I, I don't like uh, Conan. But I, I like these these characters. I kind of want to read more about them, even though I, I know that the way these these guys write, that they're just kind of just going to be the same note over and and over again. Uh, but I mean, I I can't say that I I. Um, I, I I like the characters and I and I and I and I, I identify them and I find them uh, memorable in 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 a way that I, I don't find uh, Conan or anyone or any of, of the other uh, square-jawed uh, protagonists that we've had up to, up to this point
1: I don't disagree with that and I wonder to what extent that's an effect of the stories that we've read particularly and to what extent it's a reflection of Changes in how genre fiction was written in the the early twentieth century, right? Because I feel like mm-hmm. coming into the the nineteen fifties, you have a bunch of you have well you have this you have Isaac Asimov you have Robert Heinlein mm-hmm. who wrote with a very different style than Robert E Howard or H P Lovecraft. Mm-hmm. That um, they had more in common with each other than they do with them, and similarly, I think Howard and Lovecraft have more in common with each other. Um, right? And is that just a generational thing? Is there a shift towards more like char- conversational, character-focused? fiction as we're we're moving forward in time, maybe that's something to to watch out for in the future. Mm-hmm. on the other hand, we haven't gotten yet to Lord of the Rings, which obviously is coming i think coming down firmly in the side of for, uh, formalism in terms of its dialogue uh, for big chunks of it at least
0: mm-hmm.
1: so that may be kind of a retrograde influence i don't know
0: yeah i don't i i, I also think um, i mean this story is about psi- psychiatrists i mean i I and mean, this this was about the time that that uh, Freudian psychiatry was becoming popular would it, like wouldn't it be? And I think I think Jeff yeah yeah yeah, yeah I think so. And like I, I I have to think not having you know made a study of this or or, or, or anything but I, I, I have to think that that Freud's uh, notions about uh, the 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 human psyche would 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 have a big big influence on how authors write. Characters, because because now authors are suddenly thinking about okay, what's going on in this character's brain, what's what's his motivations, what are his hang-ups, and we I, I think I think Freud uh, got us all all to think about how how the brain is is, is multiple moving parts and and yeah. very very uh, messy and that can be that can be interesting and I think that 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 has had an effect on uh, drama. Or am so I totally... if you look
1: at yeah. well here's here's something. Here's something. Uh Superman, yeah. Batman, uh Captain America, all of those like early golden age heroes were all kind of essentially one dimensional. The big uh like innovation that Marvel... that that uh, Lee and Kirby brought forward in mm-hmm. in the early '60s with uh, the Fantastic Four and Spider Man and the Incredible Hulk and stuff was what if these superheroes had personality traits? Yeah, right. And that's that's a that's a change over the over the similar similar span of time because the, that that's the amazing thing about Spider Man is that he's this guy who is who who happens to have Spider Man's powers. Mm-hmm. and goes out and does Spider-Man stuff. Uh while, whereas Batman in particularly like the really early Batman stuff is 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 as one-dimensional as most of the supporting cast of the Castle of Iron.
0: I guess I guess what I what I'm asking and I'm I'm asking because I really don't have any I I idea is is that shift because people started having an an interest in more realistic nuanced characters or is that because Authors and and dramatists didn't really know how to create well-rounded, interesting, three-dimensional characters. Mm. Like because they they just weren't weren't thinking about it. You know, like like painting. You know you know painters had to figure out things like perspective and 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 whatnot, and they. <laughs> you know over over the centuries like, like i i wonder if well, that was a was just an, an innovation that came around about this time but i think that's that's it's, far it's, beyond I mean, the scope of this show
1: <laughs> well it's also something that i think is hard to pin down to a particular cultural moment because mm-hmm. like Ernest Hemingway wrote the sun also rises um in what 1920 something mm-hmm. i don't know i read it in high school it was a long time ago but it's definitely a novel that has characters in it in the same way that the amazing spider-man is a character in the same way that harold mm. shea is a character um and that's you know again a, a generation before this stuff mm. uh, But so maybe it doesn't happen at any particular time it's just something that's Gradually trickles in over the course of of mm. the twentieth century.
0: Interesting. All right. Well, we've we've uh, we've we've certainly this this conversation has certainly gone all over the place and and wandered far outside the scope of uh, up, appendix n. Uh, if, if any uh, literature professors are are listening and thinking that we're total idiots because we because we don't know about. Uh, uh, these shifts in, in, uh, American, uh, literature and characterization, you can, you can write to us, uh, at the, Tome if, Show. if, if,
1: yeah, if you've written a book on how the structure of novels has changed over the course of the 20th century or how char- the conception of character has changed. If you've, if you've written that book, uh, or if you've read that book, uh, please listener, uh, write, write in and let me know about it. Um, cause I'm, I'm, I am curious.
0: Or, or come, come on our, on our show and, and, uh, and be, be a guest. All right. Uh, Jeff, uh, where, where on the web can people find, find you, sir?
1: Uh, Well, I continue to maintain the website jeffwick.com, J-E-F-F-W-I-K. As I always say at pretty much the end of every episode of Appendix N, there's really nothing very new on there. Maybe there will be sometime in the near future. Who can say? But in the meantime, you can go there and read my comedic retellings of uh,
0: King Arthur. You can find me, Jeffrey Wynn, on Twitter at Jeffrey D. Wynn. That's G-E-O-F-F-R-E-Y-D-W-I-N-N. And I'm also on Instagram with the same handle. You can email me by emailing thetomeshow at thetomeshow at gmail.com. Make sure to put Appendix N in the subject line so they get it to me. If you're reading along with us, and you should be because these are great stories and will make you a better person. Your first stop should be your local used bookstore. But if you can't find what you're looking for there, be sure to use the Amazon affiliate link on our website, thetomeshow.com, when you shop at Amazon.com. The Tome Show gets a few pennies to pay the bills, and we sure do appreciate it. Coming next in March, you can hear us talk about three more stories by August Derleth, The House on Kerwin Street, also known as The Trail of Cthulhu, the Dweller in Darkness and The Lurker at the Threshold. That will be our second and probably final time covering Durleth. If you haven't listened to our first Durleth episode, that's episode 36, uh, go back and give it a listen. It was a pretty it was pretty good. It was pretty good. Later in the month of March, we will also be discussing Adept's Gambit, a Fawford and Gray Mauser novella by Fritz Leiber. You can find it in the collection Swords in the Mist. And finally, two months from now, we will be looking at another novel by L. Sprague de Comp and Fletcher Pratt called The Carnelian Cube. I'm very excited about all of these, and we're going to have some fun discussions. I hope you'll join us and send us your comments. This has been a Tome Show production of Appendix N, Episode 39, The Castle of Iron by L. Sprague de Comp and Fletcher Pratt. Thanks for listening. We're friends. We're friends. Out.